welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today. We are looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of Chinese revolutionary movements starting back about 1839 and we're going up until the present day. I am Nathan Bennett, your host. I lived in China for seven years and this podcast is kind of a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. It's the beginning bits of business. Uh, I'm trying to see if I can get to 100 paid subscribers so I can start producing supplementary episodes, biographies of key people, technology, zooming in on special interest items. You can join the Substack for greater connection with the podcast. You'll get behind-the-scenes stories, stories from my time in China, free for now, paid for the... Free for now? I... I don't know. Yeah, just, just to be perfectly frank. Yeah, this is my first go at, at a lot of this. So, ah, oh, yes, yeah, so this switches on to the... This is on to the next point. Um, please reach me at ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com uh, working on building the community. So if you have any ideas, please hit me up. Um, you can support the podcast by going to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast, or you can subscribe to the substack at chineserevolutions.substack.com. Um, yeah, I need to get my strategy together for that. So here we go for today's episode. This is the promised second episode on the McCartney expedition. As I was preparing this episode, I realized, wow, there's really quite a lot of material here. So the episode on the opium trade and the suppression of it will be coming later. Uh, today we're going to look at the diplomatic expedition of Sir George McCartney to Beijing. Uh, this is in 1793. So this is right around the French Revolution. This is, you know, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Okay, so a lot of the themes are going to be, there's a lot of ships passing in the night, uh, literally, and um, just messaging, lo literally lost in translation, uh, misplaced on purpose in translation, um, not understanding the basis on which negotiation might actually happen. Uh, we'll get to how that works out. And I'm not sure if there was much of a precedent set beyond it's really, really hard to talk to these people. And uh, we'll see that in dealing with the opium trade suppression. You know, there were Chinese officials uh, sending, you know, moral messages to the other side, moral appeals that, well, the state-to-state -state diplomacy here didn't connect. And so it wasn't until some time considerably later that China was forced to see how, you know, the Europeans negotiated and discussed things that they finally started to, we'll, we'll see some interesting stuff as we get uh, at the end of the Taiping Rebellion. 
But here we're showing where things weren't connecting. Neurons were not firing. Well, neurons were firing, but in separate brains. Um, oh yeah, one one argument against... Uh, so just just to give you some idea here, one argument against you know, one world mind con you know, controlling everything. Well, this is, um, you know, the, this, if there's kind of one, all one world mind behind everything, well, today's episode is an example of that being very, very badly lobotomized. So here we go. Uh, we are mostly following accounts in Imperial Twilight by Stephen Platt. Uh, so that's really a great book. Okay, so uh, let's look at what they brought as gifts. Some of this is kind of amusing. Uh, there's a giant mechanical planetarium that took 30 years to build. Uh like one of the one of the guys in the expedition actually stayed in Beijing while the rest of them went further north to actually meet the Manchu emperor um you know cuz it wasn't the chinese in charge of china at this time it, the manchus had taken over china so they went up to the manchu homeland um so like this giant mechanical planetarium like you remember the crystal palace from the from Victorian times, like, like just showing off all the great industrial stuff in Britain. Yeah, like th this, God, this, this, I mean, just thinking about a giant mechanical planetarium, it just, man, it brings out the, the kid in me that loved going to science museums and stuff. It's like, like, why would you ever give that away as a gift? You know, you, you know, those things that you buy or make for someone else and you suddenly decide that you want one or that very one that you're going to make and give away. It's like, yeah, no, I think I'll keep this. Anyway, uh, two carriages for the emperor for the summer and winter uh, use. Um, and they're even more ornate than the carriages used by the King of England, by the way. So they, um, you know, and uh, these carriages are actually later found during the sack of Beijing in the Second Opium War, I believe it was. So, like, yeah, it tells you just how far all that went. Um, one of the things burned by uh, burned by the European forces in the in the sack of Beijing uh, during the Second Opium War, uh, the Yuanmingyuan Palace, which is a beautiful park now today. I've been there many, many times. There's a European-inspired area. So it's not like the Chinese were totally blowing off the foreigners. It's that on official diplomatic channels, they were not connecting. They were not connecting. Okay, other things. Chemical and philosophical apparatuses. So is this like alchemy equipment? Um, you know, like Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in proper Queen's English. Um a collection of military equipment, like brass field guns, collection of muskets and swords, howitzers, like, like so showing the Chinese modern European weaponry. Some very fancy chandeliers I will not even try to describe. Vases, clocks, an air pump, Wedgwood China, 
um, paintings of daily life in England, military battles on land and sea, royal family portraits, practical demonstrations of English technology, a diving bell, a hot air balloon, which was advanced technology in the 1790s. Um, so you you can see that Britain is trying to impress the Chinese with all their cool stuff. Like, look at all the cool science we've been doing. Um, today, we have trade shows. So everybody can come and see, yeah, wow, that's really cool. But you don't, you know, like uh, we have a place now where we put all that stuff so that by the time that the official politicians need to sit down and talk to each other, they can do so, uh, hopefully provided uh, thorough briefings by, you know, their underlings who went to the trade show and all that. Um, but they, they were bringing a lot of stuff to try to impress the Chinese with their state of civilization. It, um, the Chinese really should have paid attention to some of those, uh, some of the modern weapons. Um, I mean, I mean for, man, the, the Sun Tzu was Chinese, so like, like you would think that I, I I don't know how much how much you could fake having impressive weapons. I mean, we're finding with the war in Ukraine. I mean, what did Russia oversell its weaponry? So I I mean, it's still you know this is what the foreigners want to show us versus what they can actually do in war. There's also a letter from King George the Third to the Emperor Tianlong. Um, the language goes a bit overboard uh, with you know, expressing well wishes to the emperor of China and fudges the truth a bit on British purposes for going to China, you know, trade and profit, you know, but it proceeds from a place of actual British respect for Chinese culture and institutions. The British civil service was actually inspired by the Chinese Confucian uh, examination system. Um, you know, the British kind of took the idea and went their own way with it, but, you know, there's, you know, there has been cultural transmission through history. Um, an interesting person on this expedition is the Scottish mechanical expert James Dinwiddie. Uh, he's in charge of the planetarium and, in, and the practical demonstration experiments like the diving bell and the hot air balloons. He's a top European expert in hot air balloons at the time. He's afraid to go up in one, though, and he only promised to go up in one in Beijing for the sake of the mission, you know, like to awe the Chinese emperor and the Chinese people. I believe that that demonstration actually never happened, but we'll get there. So getting ready to go, as we just saw, getting uh, getting all the gifts and things together, uh, there's the language issue, so... James Flint, the guy who uh, made an appeal to the emperor and was imprisoned for his trouble, uh, died before the expedition set out. And since James Flint, uh, the East India Company had pretty much just relied on Chinese interpreters. The East India Company basically uh, gave up on encouraging personnel to learn Chinese. So when you uh, behead the teacher of the last guy who made an impression on... You, you know, who made an impression in Chinese, and the trading is going well enough, um, 
you know, why should the foreigners stick their heads out um, for rocking the boat? So yeah, you know, put them in their place. Um, so that's actually kind of the reverse perspective of the notes that I have here. So um, yeah, it's what happens when you do this late at night. Anyway, so yeah, it's like the East India Company, they had a stable operation, everything was going. So if uh, contacting the emperor is poking the bear, just, just, just stop it. Just, just don't worry about it. Don't, don't keep trying. Um, you know, but, but really the question is, where are you going to find someone who is on your side and can give your points with exquisite accuracy in the right verbiage for the people you want to be hearing it? You know, where are you going to find somebody who's on your side? Uh, when that letter from James the third, no, from George the third is translated, that we'll see some problems there too. Sir George Leonard Staunton, uh, McCartney's secretary was given the job of finding reliable interpreters. He used to, he also used this opportunity traveling all over Europe to further his own son's education, whose story will not be told here. Um, but this, you know, his son was told to learn Chinese, and so he eventually does, and goes on to have a huge role in the East India Company, and later becomes a partisan uh, for China affairs in the British government. But we're not going to tell his story. Um, Jesuit-educated Chinese brought back to Europe by Catholic expeditions to China. Um, they're educated in part to be sent back as missionaries to China, already familiar with the language and culture. Um, so you see, we're still relying on a chain of interpreters, English to European languages, to Chinese, and back again. Um, now today you can go direct, you know, like a lot of people go to China to study Chinese. I've met many of them. Um, and, uh, or you can go through English, which is you know, a trade language. Um, I worked with one guy in China who spoke Albanian, and I met one girl who had studied, I believe it was Lithuanian. Um, yeah, okay, so what the, the British were asking for expanded trading privileges, more trading ports, um, and the permanent stationing of an ambassador in the capital. So it, it's their... Like they have a lot to trade, and they don't want to just go through Canton. They want to open things up. Like they want to be able to have some warehouses, you know, have an island where they can store their stuff. Okay, so let's get the story of how this actually went. We're like fifteen minutes into this episode, and this is the quick version of the story. Um, it just God, all the things that went wrong just all the dimensions of what happened. Okay, the story of their trip, chi their trip to China, the sailing is quite adventurous, lots of colorful characters, lots of deaths by injury and disease, good fun. Um, more and more Chinese as they got closer, so like as they'd be in Indonesian ports, there'd be like huge Chinese ex uh, exclaves, um, enclaves? Enclaves. The huge Chinese trading communities, lots of Chinese ships. Um, 
they finally reach Macau in June 20, 1793. The emperor initially responded favorably to their request to send an embassy, so they, I'm not sure what understanding they were working from, but, you know, you know, it's not like you can get on a video call, you know, George III and uh, Emperor Qianlong and talk to each other and say, yeah, we'll send an embassy, okay? Yeah, sure, great, we'll be ready to receive them. We'll have a great time. Um, the other Europeans were jealous of the British opportunity, but I think that's because they shared the British misconceptions about what was about to happen. Uh, one of the two Chinese who came from Europe uh, left the party at Macau because he didn't want to risk his own neck if things went badly. Uh, a few Chinese-speaking European missionaries went with them to try to join the Catholic missionary community in Beijing. Um, they were... Uh, some Catholic missionaries were able to move to the capital, but they were forbidden to proselytize, and they were forbidden to ever leave China, uh, and they served as scientific and technical advisors probably pursuing an evangelistic strategy of winning the elites somehow. I, d I don't know where they got with that, but that was what they were trying. Uh, I've been an expat. These guys were, like, turned it up to 11 on a scale of 10. Um, so... The, the the British embassy, the you know, McCartney's expedition, they proceeded up the Chinese coast to Tianjin, the port city for Beijing, and McCartney, you know, McCartney gave it out to his to everybody with him. Everyone, be on your best behavior. Past tensions were have not helped our reputation. We've got to set a good impression here. Um, now, there's an amusing note. On the trip up the coast, there was a huge windstorm, and one of two men swept overboard is a musician from McCartney's band. Like, I, 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 like, like, okay, like loss of a sailor, okay, like that's a useful person. Whereas a musician in this context is just like, like, what are you even doing here? Like, you're not an officer, you're not a sailor. What are you even here for? That's how crammed this expedition was with the humanities in their attempt to make a good civilizational exchange, as you might call it in dreary news reporting today. Kind of reminds me of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you know, and then they ate Sir Robin's gestures and there was much rejoicing. Yay. Okay, so, um, yeah, so just there are so many not diplomatic and not immediately important uh, sailor types on this expedition that they were literally flying overboard. Um, there was some anxiety about gifts for the emperor and other important people. You know, some McCartney was twisting arms to try to get, get him to give up or sell valuables, sell him some watches for some extra gifts for the emperor and his important people. Um, when they got to Tianjin, they uh, received food supplies from the emperor to keep them eating very well on their way into the capital. So, so that's that's a good sign so far. Um, in Tongzhou, uh, which is kind of the terminus of the canal um, or the, the the water connection to Beijing, 
Um, they offloaded from ships onto carts for the land journey to Beijing. Tongzhou today is the farthest east extent of Beijing subway lines one and six. So like, like this is Beijing. Like it is a city that is set up to serve the larger city of Beijing. You know, but of course it turns out that the emperor is in J-Hole. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure exactly where J-Hole is. J-E-H-O-L. It's somewhere up in Northeast China. It's six days north of Beijing. Um, to escape the heat. Like, so, okay, we got to the capital. Emperor's not even here yet. So, okay, they left the fragile scientific gifts in Beijing with James Dinwiddie putting together the planetarium for the emperor to see when he comes back in the fall. Um, so they go north to see the emperor. The Chinese had their own notions of the fantastic gifts the British would be bringing. Apparently, something like a magic pillow that allows you to travel to different countries in your sleep. Uh, an elephant the size of a cat, 12-inch tall men. I don't... I, I mean, like, okay, if you... Like, 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 the West has had fantastic notions of what it's like in China for a long time. I, I don't know how much of this is true about the what the Chinese were expecting to receive, but let's just say that none of that was a problem, that none of that happened. There were other problems. So September, September 8, 1793, they finally reach where the emperor is. They stopped to assemble their uh, presentation team, kind of like their, uh, their procession of various dignitaries and things to show the emperor but no one was there to meet them. They were supposed to be met by a Manchu named Hushan, the Grand Chola. And it actually took the British something like 50 years, which would be about the time of the Opium War concluding. It took the British 50 years to confirm that this position did not in fact exist. Um, first day, a lot of waiting, stop and start of the parade, but no one came. Like, so someone who looked important would come in and so they okay get the procession ready ready go uh no there's nothing the following days a lot of gifts were exchanged but what they didn't understand was the the exchanges that were going on this was the trading opportunity that tributary delegations from asian states would take when visiting china the, like that that was a trade opportunity so they were receiving trade quantities of silk, porcelain, and tea, not just mountains of gifts. Um, so like, here's, here's one place where communication slips. So they finally get to see the emperor. Well, they're being instructed in the protocol for visiting the Chinese emperor. There's the kowtow. You've, you may have heard of this. Uh, it's uh, it's nine kneeling bows and three sets of three. So you acknowledge the supremacy of China, and the Chinese emperor acknowledges the supremacy of of your sovereign in your realm. Um, you're like, so did the Asian powers who would do this with no problem? Did they really believe it, or was it just you just do this? It helps keep you know keep nice relations with the big power in that part of the world 
and you know, like, what, what do they really think of it? Um, so McCartney really tried to argue the equality of Britain and China, and he asked for a modification of the kowtow ritual. The you know the the Hushen guy who he was supposed to wait for said he didn't even see the request and demanded the full ritual. And with a lot of back and forth, they worked out some kind of compromise. None of that actually worked, but we're going to let him feel good for right now. Um, the pre- there's the presentation of the letter from King George III. Catholic missionaries in Beijing amplified the subservience, deleted or reduced Christian references, and they made it sound much more like a letter from a tributary uh, expedition than like a diplomatic letter from one king to another. So the emperor basically didn't quite get the letter sent by King George III. At one point during the exchange, the uh, son of Sir George Staunton said some phrases in Chinese to thank the emperor for his gifts, this set the son on a long path to learning Chinese and being you know, really big on China issues in the British government. But this is not his story. James Dinwiddie, back in Beijing, he, helped, he was helped by the Catholic missionary community, translating, setting up his planetarium, all that. They grew frustrated and bored with him, and their enthusiasm tapered off. You know, there's also kind of something I can understand on Dinwiddie's side. When you look at long-term expats, there's there's kind of a stench to them. And I know this because I have been one. Um, there's kind of, I don't know, so, but at any rate, they were, you know, Europeans to hang out with. But at some point, they were also ordered to cut off contact with the British Embassy you know, when you look at the dates from September to October, they get one month, one month FaceTime with the British, with the Chinese emperor, with uh, the Chinese establishment. Um, when the emperor did see the planetarium and everything, he kind of gave a Meh response, which I think was more for domestic consumption, so that yeah, the emperor does believe that Chinese civilization is superior. Um, when the lesser officials came, they showed more active interest. A eunuch burned his finger in a ray focused by a magnifying glass, much to the enjoyment of all. Um, but then October 7, it's like, everybody, yep, yeah, okay, go home. The official explanation being that cold weather is coming, so it's time to go. Let's look at what they thought about all this. Okay, so the Emperor Tianlong was furiously offended by the self-importance of the British side. Um, like, he's used to everybody coming in, doing the kowtow, pledging, you know, uh, obedience to China. The the negotiation over the, the kowtow, oh, he was furious. He was offended. Um, you know, okay, me having lived in China, like, I see myself as a competent adult, 
But I, I also realized that kind of how I got along in China, I just stopped trying to learn Chinese language and culture. I stopped trying. I just, I was just going to do what I needed to do to get things done. You know, like I'm not, like, not looking to offend anybody, but I, I'm just not going to try to figure everything out. Um, I just... I've got to collect my paychecks for doing my job and just get on with things. So I have to face the reality. I've probably offended a number of people deeply, and I'll never be able to just fix it in any straightforward way. So when we look at, you know, this, this failure of this, uh, this diplomatic expedition, I, I mean, like, okay, so what do you do? Do you, like plan to send five so that expedition by expedition you can kind of find out how things go so that then when you do bring your actual um, request then you know how to give it or you know do, do you just try to communicate straight out uh, one of the things we'll see is Okay, the, the Chinese emperor did respond directly and rejected all the British demands, trade through Canton only, um, no permanent embassy in Beijing. That's not the way we do things. Um, McCartney, he was sent back overland to Canton because one of the ships had to leave for the sake of the crew. Um, so it's like, okay, can't even go back in the same ride I came in. Um, he had extremely high hopes and expectations, and they gave way to anger and condemnation. So remember, this is somebody who's been a governor of British overseas territories. He's seen Britain's rise. And just the failure of this expedition to get anything. Um, that really hurt a pretty well-established pride in British civilization. Uh, he even got into fantasizing about, you know, just what a few British ships could do to, you know, to, to, you know, to uh, Chinese fortifications on the coast. Um, you know, talking about picking off peripheral territories, like, you know, what if we got Tibet, you know, made that part of our India territories? Um, you know, but in the end, he decided mm, maybe not because we don't want to threaten trade. That's a, it's a pretty good, solid, uh, cons uh, consistent point in all, um, like in, in all international diplomacy. You know, do do we want to threaten trade? Uh, so you know, in the end, it was a failure. Um, China had no reason to open up. And they lost, but they lost a critical moment where they they could have had a lot of leverage to put the relationship in a place where they could still control it. Like, okay, open up some ports, but you stay right in those ports. Don't go anywhere but those ports. But we'll let you trade right there. You know, like, what what if they had figured that out? What if they had figured something out? And then let's look at the British. They didn't really feel respected. Like, they were trying to put on their best show. They were trying to really show China that they've got some cool stuff. 
you know, as maybe lame as that might be, when somebody doesn't feel respected, a lot of interesting things come out of that. Um, they didn't feel like they didn't get anything like what they needed or wanted. They didn't just want more trade goods. They wanted to be able to scale up, to to sell a lot more in China, to buy a lot more out of China from different places. They wanted increased volume, but the Chinese response didn't take this into account. Didn't didn't address the, address this. So there's a building sense of offense, a sense of alienation, desire for revenge even. I, I don't know, but as we said in the beginning, the precedent set here is it's really, really hard to talk to these people. And as much as it might be hard to talk to somebody, it's a whole lot easier to shoot anybody. And so we're going to see that as the Opium War kicks off. Um, you know, so if you're, if you're going to, you know, figure out diplomacy, uh, where there are no protocols, what do you do? Just go along with it? Just go along with whatever you're told? Do you insist on presenting your own case exactly your way? Well, let's sign out for now. Um, buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast if you'd like to support the podcast. ChineseRevolutions.substack.com if you'd like to join the substack. And ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com if you'd just like to send me a message. Any ideas you've got? Thanks for coming along for this episode, and we'll see you on the next one. <laughs>